Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are always so blessed to have you listening. And remember, if you ever miss an episode on the radio, you can always catch us online or on your favorite podcast app. You can find all of that by going to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. And then once you're there, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss any of our future conversations. In today's episode, we're blessed to talk with Dr. Scott Hahn about the public nature of religion and why we can't confine it to our private lives. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about caring for people at the end of life. In our bricklayer segment, we have an opportunity coming up in September for parishes and communities to reach out to migrants and refugees. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Dr. Scott Hahn. He is well-known across the country and probably the world as an exceptional speaker on topics of Scripture and the Catholic faith. He's helped many fallen-away Catholics re-embrace the faith and many Protestants to come home to Rome. He himself was welcomed into the Catholic Church in 1986. From 2005 to 2011, Dr. Hahn held the Pope Benedict's XVI Chair of Biblical Theology and Liturgical Proclamation at St. Vincent Seminary in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He's also served as the Distinguished Visiting Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. He's the best-selling author of numerous books, including The Lamb's Supper, Reasons to Believe, and Rome Sweet Home, co-authored with his wife, Kimberly, who's spoken at our one of our Minnesota Catholic Conference events a few years ago. Most recently, he has co-authored the book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, and that's the book on which we've invited him to speak with us today. For any of our newer listeners, you'll want to go back into our podcast archive for an interview from September of 2019 with Dr. Hahn's co-author, Brandon McGinley, who worked on the book with Dr. Hahn. Dr. Hahn, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. It's great to be with you. It is right and just seems like it's a little bit of a different topic than your usual Ken diving deep into scripture and covenantal theology. Why did you write the book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion? Well, there is a narrative arc going back to the Lamb's Supper. It came out in 99, looking at the Mass as heaven on earth. And then another book came out about five years later entitled Swear to God, the Promise and Power of the Sacraments, where I look at the Latin term sacramentum and see that that is the covenant oath. We usually think of oath as legalistic, ritualistic, but these really represent the building blocks of society. And more recently, as you mentioned, I came out with a book called The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. We usually think of restoring the social order from the top down. I think what we've got to do is rethink that as Catholics and recognize that we've got to stay involved in the political process, but we've also got to realize that the grassroots efforts that we do is not just local politics, but most especially our families. So looking at this bundle of issues, we have to recognize, too, that human beings are by nature religious. Not just homo sapiens, we're rational animals, we're social political animals, but we are religious. And so this desire to give back to God what we owe him is something that is not just found in the Old and New Testaments, but it's found in Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle defends in the Athenian Constitution the right to have altars and public sacrifice, and even more in Cicero and Seneca. 
it's purified, it's taken up by Augustine and Aquinas, and so that's sort of where we go. And I think it's also why this is important for our conversation today, because if we just simply live out the grace of the sacraments, we set into motion supernatural forces that are going to transform the culture, that are going to sanctify the temporal order, as Vatican II put it, and that's really our mission as lay people in the Church and in the world. I think some people really miss that, that connection between the Mass, the Lamb's Supper, the life of the faith, the sacraments, the connection and ways in which that sacramental life nourishes family life, which is, of course, the first cell of society, and that then is that basic building block which builds an authentic civilization of love. Indeed. Yeah, I think we have these lines from the liturgy, like, Lord have mercy. I've taken a book, you know, entitled that on the sacrament of confession. You know, and so when we say it is truly right and just to lift up our hearts, you know, to to give him thanks and praise always and everywhere. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, those are lines lifted from the liturgy that we know by heart, but we don't ponder enough. Once we do, we realize how the ancients got it right. There is no consensus today as to the definition of religion. Of course, from Marx on, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And I would say parenthetically and ironically that Marxism is becoming the opium of the elite. But the catechism is remarkably clear. In 2105, it distills the tradition. The duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. And no wonder, because we are individuals, but we're also social animals. It continues, this is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one Church of Christ. Now, you wouldn't begin a sentence in a catechism and say, this is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty, unless you were aware of the fact that this had been eclipsed, if not forgotten, and perhaps even denied, and indeed it has. But it goes on to not talk about a kind of forceful imposition by authorities, but rather by constantly evangelizing men. The Church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, laws, and structures of the community in which they live. And what it's getting at, obviously, is like what leaven does to bread, as our Lord uses that image, and it concludes, the social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good, and it requires them thus to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. And people might say, well, those are fighting words. Well, no, those are words for apostolate, for evangelization, through friendship, through hard work. But it's also really how we as lay apostles in the world carry out the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. Not just to make disciples in each and every nation, but to make disciples of the nations themselves. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the hegemonic secular nation-states that we've witnessed in the last 400, 500 years, but our communities, our towns, our states. And let the chips fall where they may, let the, the Lord of Lords decide just how far the grace of conversion extends, but it wouldn't surprise me if through the new evangelization we saw a culture of death, which is what the Roman Empire was back when Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission. You know, against all laws, these fishermen and tax collectors did it, and perhaps the Holy Spirit will empower us to do it again. It's really not up to us to decide what the actuarial tables are, the likelihood of—we just have to be faithful to what we have been told to do. 
picking up on the, the point you made about the definition of religion. Your book talks about the importance of true religion, which in some minds is an oxymoronic concept in the sense that for most people, religion is perceived as one subjective perspective on the things supernatural, at least those things that are beyond the realm of reason or the natural. But what is religion in the way the ancients and the historic Catholic faith has understood it? You know, we have the Latin, of course, religare, to bind oneself. But unpack the idea of what a true sense of religion is, and then we'll talk about the true religion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. Religare is where we get religion, and it's to bind or technically to rebind. And It is rooted in the notion of the covenant, because the covenant is how God binds himself to us and invites us to bind ourselves to him, and that goes back to creation. That is the natural order, what Greeks would call phusis, you know, we speak of physics, nature. You know, the the Hebrews would say berit, covenant. And so what is religion? Well, for the ancients, it was a form of justice. What does that mean? Well, justice is the highest of the cardinal virtues. And so when we speak of the the four hinge of virtues, we say prudence, fortitude, temperance, and then the mother of virtue is justice. But there are various forms. I mean, you had the lowest form is commutative, which is transactional. You pay for your groceries before you walk out of the store. The second is distributive, what we usually associate with the common good, distributive justice. But there are three transcendent forms of justice that have been almost entirely forgotten that were basic to the ancients, as well as to the patristic and medieval teachers. Piety is how you honor your parents, because in strict justice, you can't repay that debt by giving them life, food, clothing, and shelter. Patriotism is how we serve the nation, the polis, and we do that through various acts of service. But the highest debt implies the highest form of justice. The greatest of all is religio. That is what we owe to God. Well, we can't ultimately repay him any more than we can our parents, but sacrifice is the thing that we offer to God to represent the fulfillment of the law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, we usually assume that law and love are antithetical, unless the source and standard of law is God and God is love, then the only way to really render coherent the Judeo-Christian tradition is the way Jesus did, by showing that the inner logic of all of the laws is a love that is very demanding. It is very rigorous. You know, and so God hates sin precisely because he loves sinners. And so he punishes them not to get back at sinners, but to get them back to him. And if we can retrieve and recreate that sort of coherent notion of justice, and to see the highest form is religion, we will see that religion has a unique capacity to form civilizations, which even secular atheist historians will acknowledge. But it's not primarily about forming civilizations, obviously. It's about forming saints with the true religion. But at the same time, we know grace builds on nature. So the supernatural is not just some vapor that only believers can see, It is reasonable. It goes beyond reason, to be sure, but it does not go against reason. So we can show that the reasonableness of the incarnation of Jesus' death and resurrection, and especially the power of the sacraments to form building blocks, to forge these bonds, not only horizontally in society or in the Church, but vertically and especially with the Lord God. And so this is where the true religion comes in, because obviously false religion is corrupt. Cicero saw that very clearly. He despaired of finding a true religion, 
So he recognizes in the abstract that religion is the highest form of justice. It is, in fact, what he calls the virtue of virtues. But at the end of the day, he didn't have a clear sense of, well, what form of religion, nothing but corrupt superstition and that sort of thing. And so Augustine picks up on this, purifies it, and leaves us a legacy that Aquinas practically perfects. And in the tradition since then, I have a book called The Truths Men Live By in 49, Father John Anthony O'Brien, the convert maker of the mid part of the 20th century, taught for decades at Notre Dame. And over 100 pages are devoted just to reminding his Catholic readers of the truths that men live by. After God comes the justice called religion, sacrifice. And that is fulfilled most especially in the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. And that's where we get the idea of it is right and just. And I realize I'm a fire hose here, but at the same time, I hope that there is a link between each of these ideas, because I have discovered a profound cumulative sense of moral coherence. I mean, building on Alistair McIntyre and many others, this goes so far beyond Meriton and John Courtney Murray. It's not reducible to integralism or a kind of theocratic view of the state. But man alive, it's an exciting way to live family life and parish life just by means of the grace of the sacraments. That's an outstanding point, and you answered questions before I even get the chance to ask them, such as, why does religion... I'm sorry. No, no, it's wonderful. Why does religion matter for civilization, or following Christopher Dawson's dictum that culture follows cult or is rooted in cult, and so therefore having not just a religion, but the true religion matters. Orthopraxis follows from orthodoxy, and if we want to order our lives and order our society, they have to be founded on right belief and the right form of worship. You just said something with laser precision, beginning with Dawson, because there's hardly a line in Dawson I disagree with, but I wish that people would recover him especially. You know, this idea of cult and culture, that man is by nature homo religiosa. We we have to worship. I mean, Bob Dylan famously wrote that song back in the 70s when he had a temporary Christian conversion. you got to serve somebody. Well, that's still true, and he knows that. And so if you're not going to serve the living God, you're going to serve idols, and you're going to end up rejecting idols, but then creating a modern secular state that becomes a magnificent idolatrous construct. That is at least how the ancient Israelite prophets would describe it. Well, you know, the fact is, if cult, if worship is the source of culture, we've got to also remember that politics is downstream from culture, that culture has more to do with neighborhoods than it has to do with, you know, national elections. We've got to stay involved in local and federal politics, for sure. But at the same time, we're Catholics, and so we don't just think in terms of election cycles. We think in terms of generations and the family and the intergenerational bonds. And so we're not just planting this false crop to feed ourselves in the winter. We're planting forests that we may not live to see so that our great-grandchildren have the lumber to build their houses, their furniture, and to cook their meals. And now that we have 20 grandkids, I have more skin in the game than ever before, and that's just from our first three kids. And the next one, Jeremiah, just got ordained to the priesthood on May 21st, and we're really excited about Father Jeremiah and his younger brother who's following him, because, I mean, it really is, it's not church and state, it's clergy and laity. The church is not reducible to the clergy. And so when we look at how we function as lay apostles in the world, sanctifying the, the temporal order, 
we've got to see that the church is a sacramental organism, but it is already a socio-political entity, whether we want to affirm it or not. In this case, it seems like our opponents understand us better than we do. We've got to study their criticism to recognize that it's not entirely false. Likewise, we've also got to recognize the myth of religious neutrality is kind of being dispelled, that the gloves are off, and they're basically showing us that even in the age of tolerance, it was just a disguise. They weren't really and truly neutral toward Christianity in general and the Catholic faith in particular. There was an ongoing effort to subvert that, and I wouldn't fixate on those subversive efforts. I would say, let's live out the sacraments, and then again, entrust us to the Lord of history, because he's the King of Kings no matter who occupies the White House. And let's just see what he chooses to do. He might bless us, he might purify us through more and more challenges and sufferings and that sort of thing. But either way, we're here to get to heaven to take as many with us as we can. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Hahn. He is the author of the very fine book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, co-authored with Brandon McGimley and out from Emmaus Road Publishing. Dr. Hahn, you've alluded to this in your last comment, but we seem to be awash in religion. In fact, we can't get away from it. We have, it seems, new religions all around us that have their own dogmas, complete with inquisitions and even excommunications on some level. It speaks, it seems to me, to the reality that, as you said earlier, that the human person needs religion. There's an existential hole that we need to fill and bind ourselves to something, a cause greater than ourselves. And if that's not God, it's going to be another set of dogmas. There is no religiously neutral state, and there's probably no religiously neutral person. Does that make sense? It sure does. You know, once you say there is a law that measures justice, you know, just step back and ask this question. What is the source of law and the standard of justice? Even if you call yourself an atheist, once you've identified the source of law and the standard of justice, you basically come to the curtain, now pull it back and tell us what is the name of your deity. Is it a democratic majority? Then liberalism is your religion. Is it high tech? And so on. So what I think we've got to do, again, we've got a major on the majors, and that is the gospel and the power of the sacraments to form civilization of love. On the other hand, we can't ignore these minor skirmishes that are becoming bigger every day, because you have to recognize and come to know your opponents, and at the same time recognize that greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. In other words, the devil is no match for the third person of the Holy Trinity. And that gives us, maybe not optimism, but it gives us the supernatural virtue of hope, and then some. Dr. Hahn, Dignitatis Humanae from the Second Vatican Council talked about religion as the way in which we respond to the call of the Creator, consistent with our conscience, and of course it, it was sort of that first charter within the Catholic Church for broader religious liberty, and the Church is deeply engaged in questions of religious liberty today, yet we seem to be losing ground. Where is the Church and our Catholic perspectives on religious liberty uh, moving in the right direction, and perhaps what might need some rethinking if we're going to be more effectively able to defend religious liberty in the public square? If you read Dignitatis Humanae, which of course is one of the 16 documents of Vatican II, you'll see that it's reaffirming the traditional teaching of the true religion and the obligation of societies to acknowledge Christ's kingship. On the other hand, you know, you have to recognize that there are ambiguities in Dignitatis Humanae, so you've got to read that in the tradition, alongside of the encyclicals that have clarified this truth. 
And if you don't, the temptation is obvious. We describe in the book what happened in August of 73 in Sweden when two robbers barricaded themselves and took four hostages. Five days later, they're captured. But in the trial, these hostages not only defended their captors, but they raised money for their defense. This is how Stockholm Syndrome entered our vocabulary, because sometimes hostages internalize the values of their captors just as a coping mechanism. And I think Catholics in America have inadvertently done that. They've kind of gone along to get along. And so they've internalized secularism, where you relativize religion. You don't just privatize it. I mean, that goes back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation. But you relativize religion so that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so that religion becomes like a pizza topping. You know, I like pepperoni, Mike likes anchovies or pineapple. But religion is just really a matter of subjective preference, when in fact, if there is God, and the one true God has revealed himself through the Son and his death and resurrection, then we've got to sit up and pay closer attention, because this is not only true, it's real, it's powerful, it's beautiful, and it alone has a capacity to bring a higher level of justice through love to our families, in our marriages, to our societies, whether we elect politicians who keep their promises or break them. If we keep our promises and fulfill our sacraments, our oaths, then again, we're going to set into motion a counterforce that I think will do more than drain the swamp. But again, we've got to think intergenerationally, not just in terms of the next election. We've got to think, okay, in terms of our grandkids and our great-grandkids. And this is what Catholics in America used to do second-naturedly. Now we've got to really rediscover that habitus and learn to think like Catholics. You know, Paul says to the Philippians, your citizenship is in heaven, which implies dual citizenship. We've got American citizenship, but above all, we've got heavenly citizenship. And so we're here to get out of here. But at the same time, that doesn't divest us of our responsibility. It invests us with a heavenly power to do earthly work like the monks did in forming European civilization, later called Christendom. And I think we underestimate the unique power of our faith to reform society, beginning with our marriages, beginning with our own personal lives as well, in our heart, through our prayer, and that sort of thing. But again, as you say, there are so many thousands of things this is connected to that we could talk about. Dr. Hahn, I'm privileged to work in an ecumenical and interreligious frame, building common ground for the common good, as we like to say, across different lines. And I think that, especially among some Muslim friends, they're definitely of the opinion that civilization should be ordered around the true religion, except we disagree about what the true religion is. My Jewish friends tend to be in a more liberal frame of reference, but each wonders, you know, if we build society along Christian lines, how do people of non-Catholic faith, how do they fit into society? Uh, what do we do with them, they wonder, and they ask me. Yeah, well, I mean, this is where we've got to recognize that the virtue of toleration, you go back and you'll find it in the Middle Ages with regard to St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on how Jewish people ought to be treated. I can't go into this, and we don't really get into it in the book. It'll take more time. But I, I think we recognize that on the one hand, we share with the Muslims this idea that if God is God, then he is the source and the standard of law and justice and order. On the other hand, with our Jewish friends, we recognize that we are in exile. And so, you know, Jeremiah comes to play. You know, what bothered Jeremiah the most was not that the Jews were in exile, is that the Jews didn't know they were in exile. They were so comfortable in Babylon, they had internalized Babylonian values 
more than the old covenant. And so Jeremiah preached what we now call Jeremiads to kind of wake them up and recognize at least you want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Well, we don't have an earthly city. We've got a heavenly city, and we don't have to die in order to go to heaven, because in the Mass, that's where we are. The angels and saints are who we're with. I point this out in my book, The Lamb's Supper, and so that is how, in a certain sense, we can bridge the theocratic impulse of militant Islam, as well as the exilic psychology of Jews who often embrace secularism and liberalism, precisely because they find themselves as a kind of minority that is targeted. Again, this is wisdom for another book, for another interview. Thanks for raising these questions, but I apologize for not doing them justice. No, that's that's absolutely fascinating, and that that is another conversation. Both of those themes, the exilic psychology and yet the theocratic impulse that we see in some forms of Islam. So thank you for that. I think that's really, really important. One more question. What are some practical steps on the way back to enthroning true religion in our hearts and our families and society? You learn to add, then subtract. First, you know, add prayer, the morning offering, the rosary, daily mass if you can. But regardless, morning prayer and evening prayer, a little reading from the gospel. And then you also have to subtract the things from your life that stand in the way. And then you also have to multiply. You have to gather your family and pray the family rosary. You've got to, you know, read Scripture, even if it's for three minutes. But then you also divide by sending them out and asking your family members through friendship to share their values, but also the joy of the faith. As Pope Francis called it, the joy of the gospel, the joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. And so our world is joyless, and people are looking for joy. And so if we can basically experience this grace of ongoing conversion with our family members and friends, Again, we set into motion a counterforce of joy that overcomes the angst as well as the addiction mentalities that surround us on all sides. And then at the end of the day, go to Mass and, uh, and celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass with deeper gratitude, and then ask the Lord to go home and help us. We enthrone the Sacred Heart in a traditional Catholic ritual with a priest who just did a, a wonderful job of inspiring it in our young kids, you know, some 25 years ago. And we've renewed the enthronement of the Sacred Heart and our family a, a couple of times. And things like that, you know, a little bit goes a long, long way. Well, I love that you used the word enthronement, and you picked up on my uh, question using that proper term as well. What if we enthroned the Sacred Heart and flew that flag uh, from our flagpoles and not uh, the flag of the secular state. So that's what a wonderful conversation and a blessing to have you on the show. Dr. Scott Hahn, the book is It Is Right and Just from Emmaus Road Press. Dr. Hahn, where else can people go to find your writings and lectures? Well, 20 years ago, Kimberly and I founded the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. So stpaulcenter.com and our publishing arm is Emmaus Road, which did this book. And it's also Emmaus Academics. So if we have intellectuals listening in, you might want to go to the St. Paul Center and look at the 30 or 40 books we're coming out with a year, because you'll find four or five that have life-changing potential, not only for you, but for people you're in conversations with. Dr. Han, blessings to your family and blessings on the great work you continue to do. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment.
Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into our mailbag segment. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Earlier this summer, the church marked World Day for Grandparents and the Elderly. This was in conjunction with the memorials of Saints Anne and Joachim, the grandparents of Jesus. So in response to this important day, we received a question as to what is the church in Minnesota doing to help ensure that people's lives and dignity are respected as they near the end of life? Jason, can you share a little bit about some of MCC's work on end-of-life issues? Two notable initiatives. First of all, spurring end-of-life conversations and talking about healthcare directives. We have end-of-life resources at mncatholic.org slash healthcare directive or go to mncatholic.org and click on the resources tab. A guide to end-of-life decision-making, assigning a healthcare agent. These are important conversations to have to make sure that at the end of life, people are cared for, but also cared for in a way consistent with their Catholic faith and sound ethics and morals. So again, go to mncatholic.org, click on resources. Also, our partner organization, the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare, ethicalcaremn.org working for quality, ethical life care throughout life's journey in the public policy arena, and specifically in opposition to assisted suicide. So those are both great initiatives uh, that we're working on at MCC. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And what do we have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Coming up in September is World Day of Migrants and Refugees. This is the 107th annual day marked by the church globally out of its concern for people in very vulnerable situations. People have been forced to leave their homes, and the church has consistently, especially since the World Wars, ministered to these people in crisis situations, letting them know of the church's love and care and concern for them, and helping them both in their sense of their material needs, but also in their spiritual needs as well. We want people to know that in these difficult times in life, the Lord is close to them and the church is there to care for them. Pope Francis has announced this year's theme is Towards an Ever Wider We. To begin preparations at your local parish and in your community, you can visit our website, mncatholic.org forward slash Immigration Sunday. Again, mncatholic.org forward slash Immigration Sunday for a wealth of resources that you can observe on September 26th, World Day of Migrants and Refugees. That's all the time we have today. I'm Jason Adkins and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.